our church is a remarkable church. We've got this wonderful and growing group of artists. And at the same time, I don't know if you know this, but there's a quiet revolution going on. There's a growing group of scientists. And I'm learning so much from <laughs> Russ Laughed. He's married to an artist and he's a scientist. So he understands the nature of the eternal struggle. <laughs> I'm learning so much. From both of these groups in our church, both of you are opening my eyes to more and more of the glories of this world that our Father created. Over the past few years, if you've been with us, you know that I've spoken quite a bit about the artist and your work and your gift. I've talked about your role in helping us to see God for who He truly is and His purposes in our world. This morning, I'm going to come at things from the other angle, the angle of scientists, because science also helps us to see God more truly and his purposes in our world. For example, one of the things that science gives us is a good and reliable picture of the universe. Through science, we know that despite the fruitfulness of this universe, everything is going to end one day. Cosmology, it's the scientific study of the origin and the evolution of the universe. Cosmology helps us to see with a fairly high degree of confidence that our universe is not going to last forever. For example, we know that the sun shines through the effects of its own internal nuclear reactions turning hydrogen into helium. And we know that in about 5 billion years, all the core hydrogen will be exhausted. And what happens then, Russ? It grows, right? It grows and it becomes a red star, a red giant. And you know what happens at that moment? Everything on earth is incinerated. All life on earth is burned up. We have enough scientific knowledge about the way stars evolve to make this prediction with absolute reliability. Coming at it from another angle, the long-term history of the universe is controlled by the competing effects of expansion, the explosive consequence of the Big Bang, and gravity, the drawing of all matter together. Now, these contrasting tendencies are basically evenly balanced, and we don't know with certainty which one's going to win in the end. If expansion predominates... The possibility currently favored by most cosmologists. Cosmic history will continue forever by the world growing steadily colder and more dilute. Eventually everything will decay into low-grade radiation. If gravity predominates, the present expansion will one day be halted. And guess what happens? Reversed. And what began with a big bang will end in a big crunch. The universe will implode into a cosmic melting pot. These are the two options in front of us. Now, the timescales for these are obviously immensely long, spanning tens of billions of years. But one way or another, this is where the whole thing is headed. The universe will end either in the whimper of cold decay or the bang of a fiery collapse. Science shows us that we live in this finely tuned, fruitful universe, but it is facing ultimate end. Now, there are 
those of us in the room who spend much time in science, this is nothing new. If you were standing where I am right now, you would see two looks on people's faces. You would see some people nodding like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. For those of us who don't pay much attention to science, or if you're accustomed to rejecting science as the enemy of faith and keeping it at arm's length, then this is quite a disturbing description. This morning, I want us to face up to this reality. Science is not the enemy of faith. It's an analysis of the world God made. And this is the world God has made. Now, how do we respond to it? That's the Christian question. How do we respond to the ultimate end of life in this universe? The distinguished American theoretical physicist Steven Weinberg, writing within the limited horizon of an atheist physicalism, with science as his only guide, he says that the more he understands the universe, the more it becomes quite clear that it's pointless. So he finds a way to avoid complete despair by arguing that human life seen in this massive, massive kind of cosmic scale, while it's only a transient episode in the history of the universe, human life still represents this small island of self-created meaning around which laps the ocean of meaninglessness. Now, he's written a very famous book, The First Three Minutes, And in this book, he says, the effort to understand the universe is one of the very things that lifts human life a little above the level of farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. That's all we can hope for. Some of the grace of tragedy. Not farce, but maybe the grace of tragedy. In other words... Tragic occurrences that have some sort of meaning. And that meaning is derived, he says, by being able to just think about the fact that life exists. So Weinberg looks at the evidence and he develops something of an austere nobility in the face of pessimism. But there's another option. An option besides stoic defiance. And that option is Christian hope. This very specific thing. Called Christian hope. We see this in Isaiah 65. We heard this read this morning. Our Old Testament reading. If you have a Bible. Please turn there to Isaiah chapter 65. Or scroll there if you're one of those. (laughs) Not that scrolling has always been a bad thing. But now we know it's a bad thing. Isaiah chapter 65, if you're new to the Bible, use your table of contents. It's very hard to find your way around in this book. It's big and complex. No shame in that. You just got to jump in and start going for it. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Stop right there. Christian hope is not the same thing as optimism. Or wishful thinking. Christian hope is not rooted in physical process. But in the will and the purpose of the creator. And we see this will and this purpose in Isaiah 65. You see Christian hope is not afraid of science. It says yeah science is an amazing thing right. We all rely on it. I mean I would be a very old man at my age if it wasn't for science right. 
Because of science, lifespans have grown remarkably. I mean, there's so many levels in which we are grateful for it. Christians have got to stop looking at science as the enemy of faith and look at it as one of the great tools that looks at this work God has done. But Christian hope isn't based on physical processes. It's rooted in the will and purpose of the creator of those processes. And we see this will in Isaiah 65. We see that the intentions of the creator for this universe will not be frustrated by the collapse of the cosmos. That's verse 17. I create new heavens and new earth. And in verse 20, as we'll see in just a minute, the will and purpose of the creator is not frustrated by our own individual deaths either. Neither the death of the cosmos, which is as sure to happen as your own death, okay? Just because you can't lift your mind to the level of billions of years doesn't mean it's not sure. It's just as sure. But neither of those, the collapse of the universe or the collapse of your body, neither of those frustrate the will and purposes of God. The ultimate future does not belong to scientific extrapolation. It belongs to divine faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of God which guarantees the ultimate future. Don't get into an argument where you're trying to to make science guarantee the ultimate future. Accept science for what it's telling us. Do not be like those who resisted the um, antidote to smallpox. Do not be like those who resisted the Copernican revolution. Be careful that in your resistance to science, you're not confusing things. We take science. We definitely weigh its claims. But our root approach to it needs to be that it is our friend. Not our root approach being that it is our enemy. Our root approach is that it's our friend. But above and beyond the physical processes, we bank our lives on the faithfulness of God who has purpose for his creation. God has a purpose. And Christian hope is not a flight into an imaginative world of fantasy. It is the fulfillment of God's will taking shape in the blood and ashes and real living and real working and real loving of a real world. The same God who initially created everything has a purpose and the power and a plan. And that's where we root Christian hope. And in this radical work of new creation, look at the end of verse 17. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. There will come a moment when the creator will stand before death and evil like Gandalf on the bridge before the Balrog. And he will say, you shall not pass. And it will be. That's where we root Christian hope. And in this new creation, there will not be sorrow or pain or suffering. That's what it means. The former things shall not be remembered in the context. It's talking about the bad stuff. This new creation will be this world completely healed of its decay. 
Even the memory of all the deaths we've suffered will be reconciled. That's remarkable. How is God going to reconcile in me the deaths that I've had to live through? But he will. You shall not pass. And look at verse 18. In contrast to the suffering and memory of suffering, there will be, in its absence, only joy. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I love how this doubling of imperatives commands. Be glad, rejoice. In Hebrew, those are both imperative. I love how this doubling of the imperative verbs, how this is a guarantee of total joy. As if saying it two ways encompasses every possible feeling of joy. Our experiences of joy. Those deep moments of peaceful happiness that come to us through music and art and nature and human love and through worshiping God. These are foretastes of life in the new heavens and the new earth. Janelle and I often vacation with our good friends Keith and Terry Miley. Last spring we went with them to Sedona, Arizona. If you've not been there, it is astonishing. It's so beautiful hiking and biking and eating great food and seeing the most beautiful sights. And there, are these, there were these moments where we had hiked up to the top of this mountain and, and we're looking out over these red rocks. It's just astonishing. And this blue sky that goes all the way down. And we're standing there with these friends who've known us long and deep. And it's just perfect. Have you had one of those moments where everything is gone? All the pain is gone. And for that moment, you feel your heart would explode if there was any more joy. That's called an hors d'oeuvre. That's a foretaste. You've had it. Mothers who've given birth when you hold that baby. And you think your heart can contain no more love. Foretaste. And look at verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Notice my people. God's faithful people are the ones who will experience the rule and reign of God when all is made well. I hope that you're one of those. I hope that it can be said of you by God that you're my people. I hope that you've come in faith to him through Christ. If not all that I'm talking about this morning, I hope it seduces you into faith. Sorrows will have no place. There is nothing to cause sorrow. The new creation and its people will exactly match the divine design. There is nothing that falls short of the benevolent creator's will and purposes. Now look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. Now 
this is, this is a little hard to, to wrap our minds around what he's saying. I mean, the general gist we can get. Look, throughout this passage, Isaiah is using aspects of present life to help us imagine something that is to come, right? When you're talking to your children and trying to get them to understand something, sometimes you take what they do know and you try to use that, right? You try to flip that so that they can understand something that's all completely out of their realm of possibilities. We know from the rest of the Bible that death will not be there. Remember, things we have no real capacity to understand can only come to our understanding through things we do understand. So in this present order of things, death cuts life off before it's begun or before it's fully matured. Many of us have experienced that. Someone who died in the prime of youth or even someone who died in a good old age, but they still had more to do. This morning, one of our own, Brian Henson, who moved home to be with his father, he passed away. And right now, Brian is in the midst of all this, fresh and assaulting. He's living with the sting of death. But it will not be. You shall not pass into the new heavens and the new earth. What Isaiah is showing us here is that no infant will fail to enjoy life, nor an elderly person come short of total fulfillment. Indeed, one would be but a youth or one to die at a hundred years old. It's like the ints, right? Death will not be present. He's already made that point. Back in chapter 25, listen to this most beautiful poetic statement of the ending of death. Isaiah 25 verse 7. He will sw- God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Isn't that an elegant description of death? He will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples. You know, my children, they like to get in the kitchen with our dog Buster and throw, throw this blanket over him. That happened to us. Death was thrown over us. And God will swallow up that blanket. Listen to this. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isn't that a remarkable foreshadowing of the cross? The cross shows us that God can't, he's not just snapping his fingers so that death goes away. He's taking it into himself. And that's where he destroys it. The swallowing up of it. Not the, not the wiping away of it. Not the fairy with the wand. But God himself taking on flesh, receiving all of death and evil into himself. That's the cross. That's the answer. So back to our passage in Isaiah 65 verse 20. God is telling us that over the whole of life, as we would now say from infancy to old age, the power of death will be destroyed. God's final intentions for this universe will no more be frustrated by cosmic death than it is by individual death. Notice verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The thought here is not of beginning to build and then failing to complete, but of building and failing to enjoy because the fruit of your labor is snatched away by an enemy. That's what will no longer be. 
Our work will not be marked by the thorns and thistles that entered with sin. And notice, the life of the world to come will have its own time and history in which the redeemed participate in the unending exploration of the infinite riches of the divine nature. The new creation will not be a timeless eternity. It will be a world where time exists in an everlasting way. After all, it will contain music. And music cannot exist without time. Music is that form of art that is built around time. We'll experience the unending exploration of the inexhaustible riches of God. We'll be a pilgrim people journeying into the deepest reality that will always be ever more thrilling and ever more enhancing and ever more life-bending. These images are so rich and evocative. You've got a tree and a vineyard. This is a picture of durability and longevity. A life that has a secure hold on its place. I love that image of the tree. Securely holding in place. And then there's verse 23. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Children born without labor pains. Listen to how this same concept is described just one chapter later. In chapter 66 of Isaiah verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Now some of you who know about Janelle and I know that Shay was born in a car. Not pulled over on the side of the road. I'm driving and Janelle says, I'm going to have this baby. To which I think, that's what women who are screaming in labor pains. That's the way this thing goes. But she meant, right now I'm going to have this baby. And I looked over and she had delivered herself in the front seat. And Shay was in her arms. Now you can almost say that before she was in labor, she gave birth. Except for the two hours of labor before that. But can you imagine if birth even beats labor? Isn't that a beautiful image? Before pain came upon her, she delivered a son. This is an obvious allusion to what? To Genesis 3.16. Not only will the curse on the ground be taken away, but the curse not only of men's labor, but of women's labor will be taken away. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will completely undo the curse. I can't wait to sing it at Christmas, right? In just a few weeks, we'll belt it out. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And then the third verse, right? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make the blessings flow. Where? As far as what? The curse is found. All of, all of Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, every verse references Genesis 1, 2, or 3. Every verse. Remember I kept saying all through the fall that Abraham is the hinge of the Bible. It is God dealing with evil. It is God restoring what was broken in Genesis 3. And anytime the Bible starts talking about the renewal of all things, it goes back to that and says undone, undone, undone. All of the curse, undone. Don't you long for it? 
When Christ returns and all is healed and the faithful of the Lord will live in joy with all of the discords and the enmities and the injuries of the old creation finding harmonious reconciliation. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Notice the only point in the whole of the new creation where there is no change is the curse pronounced on sin. The serpent eating the dust. Only that doesn't change. But do you see it? God's healing and restoring of this world is not simply about humans. It's about all of creation being healed. Do you see it there? It starts out talking about us, then it talks about cities, and then it moves out into the, to the natural world. Don't get me wrong. At the center of God's purposes in this world is for you and me, for humans, the high point of his creation, the image of God, for us to be reconciled with God so that we can be reconciled with our true selves and with one another and with creation. The, the center of all of this is the great work of God in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the removal of our guilt, so that we can be once again reconciled to the source of life, so that we can once again no longer be subject to the anti-life forces of death and decay, but live forever in the life source of God himself. That's the center of it all for us to be true transformed into decayless, everlasting humans. But it doesn't stop with our own healing. Do you see it? Right there. It radiates out from us to where? All of creation. So that even enemies in the realm of nature will be reconciled to one another will peacefully coexist. What a glorious picture. When Christ returns and all is made new, we will live lives in a world filled with blessing where the curse ruled over the ground, over creation, over procreation, over human labor, where the curse ruled, blessing will rule. And what is the basis of this hope beyond our deaths and beyond the collapse of the universe? There is only one possible source. The eternal faithfulness of the God who is the creator and the redeemer of history. See, all of Christianity is on this issue that the God who created is the same God who redeems. And that's what Christian hope rests upon. Our hope is rooted in In God who can bring new life and raise the dead. Our hope is rooted on God whose spirit breathes life into even decaying bones and makes them live. Our hope is in the steadfast faithfulness and love of a benevolent creator. Our hope is rooted in God's faithfulness. And this is most obvious In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead. Only such a God could be the ground for that hope. That transcends the limits of science. Now this is a much more robust and more specific hope. Than a kind of minimalist account 
of a deity. Which sees God as not much more than the mind behind the cosmic order. This is much more robust and specific than a minimalist view of Christ. Which sees Jesus as no more than an inspired teacher. Pointing humanity to new possibilities for self-realization with a message living on in the minds of his people. No, no, no. Real hope. Hope in life after death. And life after the collapse of the cosmos. If we go that far, we may. This may cruise on for billions of years. It might be that in that end, a rebirth is done. One day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. We are living in the last times. What that means is we're in the last act. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right now. It means we're in the last act. Jesus has come. That's the last great act before the next great act, which is the renewal of all things. And, that, and we've got to live every day as if today is the last day. But we are also told by the same Jesus in the very next parable to live every day as if it could wait beyond our ability to wait. Real hope, hope in life after death and life after cosmic collapse is based on a God who is powerful and active and not, and not simply holding creation and being, but also interacting in history. The one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's what Paul said in Romans 4.17. This same God must be the one whose loving concern for us individual creatures is such that the divine power will be brought into play to bring about the creature's everlasting good. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is that God. So as we live here and now amidst the shattered utopian dreams of the 19th century and the demonic experiences of warfare and genocide in the 20th century, as we live now in the ennui of the 21st century, the profoundly challenging knowledge of science, as we face up to all of this, our hope rests on a faithful creator, a sanctifying spirit, and a merciful redeemer. That's Christian hope. Let's pray.